Hello, and welcome to Think Business Futures. I'm your host, Stefan Postuma, coming to you from 2SER Studios in Sydney on the Gadigal land of the Eora Nation. Broadcast right around Australia on the Community Radio Network and around the world wherever you get your podcasts. Each week, we take a closer look at the business issues making up the news. This program is made possible by the assistance of the UTS Business School. Behavioural economics has a broad impact on our understanding of individual decision-making processes and how they affect our behaviour. Today on the show, we're looking at the concept of herding, asking the question, why do we follow crowds and when do we choose not to? The actions of others inevitably influence our decision-making, so when is it a good idea to follow and when is it not? We'll be looking at how we can apply what we know about herding to things like financial markets and exploring how social media influences group behaviour. Joining me in the studio is Michelle Badley, Behavioural Economist, Associate Dean of Research at the UTS Business School and author of the book Copycats and Contrarians, Why We Follow Others and When We Don't. Michelle, thank you so much for joining me here on Think Business Futures. Thanks, Stefan. Now, to start with, tell us about what behavioural economics is and how it's applied in both the micro sense and in the macro sense. Okay, thank you. It's a very broad subject, so different people have different understandings of what it is. But to me, it's something that brings together economics with sociology, psychology, behavioural science, taking from economics the analytical focus on incentives and motivations, but bringing in a more intuitive understanding of how and why people do things. And in terms of offering an alternative to the very strict rational choice model usually associated with economics in which people are always making rational choices, not making systematic mistakes and operating almost as if they're mathematical machines. Behavioural economics softens that a bit, whilst for me retaining some of the analytical strength of economics and also in addressing incentives, motivations, benefits, costs, those sorts of things traditionally associated with economics. So it it works best in a micro context because it's about individual people or businesses' behaviour. And when you aggregate it up to a macro context, it becomes harder to define and analyse because behavioural economics talks a lot about heuristics, so quick decision-making rules that people use to get through their daily lives in a convenient way and the biases that those heuristics create. And so, for example, if we're wanting to decide very quickly about something, we might look quickly at a bit of news or quickly at a a recommendation uh, from TripAdvisor or whatever if we're we're going travelling. Whereas standard economics would argue that we look more carefully into our decisions. But the trouble when we decide so quickly with these heuristics, these quick decision-making rules, we make systematic mistakes. And so when people are making different systematic mistakes, aggregating all of that up to a macroeconomic level to capture, you know, a whole economy or a whole society of people, that becomes quite complicated. But increasingly, behavioural economics is figuring out ways to understand how lots of different people behaving in different ways can be modelled in a macro context. But it's that's the big challenge for behavioural economics, in my view, is capturing the macro picture. Mm. How big of an impact has our understanding and our continued understanding of behavioural economics had on the way economists work? 
one key impact from behavioural economics has been in terms of behavioural public policy. And so in the way that policymakers design nudges, so people will be familiar with the idea of a nudge, that you design a choice so it's easy to make easier to make the right choice. So one common nudge is to offer a default option. So if you want to increase blood donations or organ donations, the default is that you do donate and you have to opt out to not donate or superannuation funds similarly. And so behavioural economics has had a lot of impact on that sort of policy environment. And in terms of economics and economists, they're feeding into the, the, the development of new policies more and more. But in other ways that it's changed economics, when I first got into behavioural economics, most economists were pretty sceptical. But now it's really in economics really quite deeply. You see it all over the place. And so when economists are thinking about how people plan for the future or how they deal with the risks that they confront, then some of these behavioural insights about the fact that people aren't always very systematic when they're planning for the future or they're not always very good at dealing with risks, that's starting to come through into mainstream economic theory quite deeply now, including in the, in the top economics journals. Mm. It's fascinating stuff. All right, well, let's let's move on to your book. It's called Copycats and Contrarians, Why We Follow Others and When We Don't. It explores this idea of herding. What is herding? So herding can be very broadly defined. So my understanding of herding and the literature that literatures that I'm drawing on are the idea that people follow one another in a systematic sort of way for reasons that might be explained by economic ideas or might be explained in terms of social and psychological pressures or a combination of both. And so it's when people follow others and not in in a random way. Okay. Are there some basic rules as to why we herd and, and, and also maybe tell us about the different types of herding that we see? Yes. An economist would explain herding in terms of something called an information cascade. And so the idea is that if we see someone doing something, we think, well, they know something I don't. So if they're taking a certain route through traffic or they're buying a a particular type of new mobile phone or new computer or whatever, they see that other person doing something and they think, well, maybe that person knows something that I don't, so I'm going to copy them for that reason. And so when we're not very sure and when we're quite ignorant of something, we might think, well, let's see what that other person is doing and follow along behind. So, for example, in my life, I get lost really quite easily when I'm driving. Me too. (laughs) (laughs) And often what I think is, well, there's a stream of, if I'm heading, obviously, if I'm heading for a main road, there's a stream of traffic heading in one direction. They're probably heading towards a, a main road. So I'm going to follow along behind them because perhaps they know the way when I don't. And another example, because I do like to use public transport, having lived in London for a long time. Um, and you see it in Sydney as well. Anyone who's travelled from Bondi Junction knows that the train, if you want to sit forward, you don't quite know Mm. before the train starts which direction is forward and which direction (laughs) is, is backward. And so what I sometimes do is just... What's everyone else doing? And it often, and so I sit in the same direction as other people. It often works quite well, but it doesn't 
always worked very well. So it's the idea that other people know more than you do or you assume that they know more than you do and so you follow along behind them. So it's got a predictive power. What other people do, assuming that they know what they're doing, has got predictive power. The trouble comes when other people actually don't know what they're mm. doing and so someone makes that assumption, follows someone else who doesn't really know what they're doing and everyone follows the crowd in a, in a way that's not a constructive thing to do necessarily. So that's the sort of economics idea. It's this idea that people have been quite rational and systematic in their decision making. So that's one hypothesis, if you like. And then the, on the other side of it, you've got a lot of literature from sociology and, and social psychology about how people do what other people are doing because of peer pressure. They want mm. to fit in with the group. They're obedient to authority or all sorts of social reasons why people want to do what other people are doing. It's got nothing to do with information. It's just got to do with being part of a group because we are social animals and we like to fit in generally. But another point to make from it is that not everyone's the same. Mm. And so it's quite interesting that there are certain people or contexts. So some people might be conformist in one context and not so conformist in another. Uh, but there are also the others who don't. You know, the people who don't follow the crowd, who don't do what other people are doing. And I guess in a business context, this has a lot of application in terms of entrepreneurship. Mm. And, the, and, and the people who have, I guess, in some way that the, the confidence or perhaps the foolishness to just do what other people aren't doing, mm. to be a rebel, to be a maverick. So I have a little bit in my book on the mavericks, which I think is actually quite an interesting thing to explore because mm. the mavericks are more unusual. We'll, uh, we'll move on to mavericks soon, but let's continue with the idea of herding and following the crowd. I suppose, okay, well, let's let's talk about the interplay between reason and emotion when mm. it comes to herding. What do, what do we know? And also, tell us about these experiments that mm. you've conducted that have to do with this because it's fascinating. Yes. When, when I was in the UK, I collaborated with some, some great neuroscientists at, at Cambridge in the Department of Physiology, Development and Neuroscience. And so what we did was taking these ideas about people following others in a financial context. So we were, we designed an experiment in which we asked, told people about the decisions that people had made about a financial choice, let's say buying a stock or share. And we gave our experimental participants um, some information. Did the other people buy or not buy this share? And it was, it was an artificial context. It, it wasn't a real context. But we gave the people this information and then asked them to decide themselves. And so we did the basic experiment. And unsurprisingly, a lot of experiments have confirmed that that's a strong tendency to herd. We're more likely than not to herd and follow others. But the interesting thing about these experiments was that we also did some brain imaging. Mm. Because I started, I guess, with an hypothesis that Herding was a sort of emotional, impulsive thing, but wanting to contrast with this with the more systematic idea that people are watching other people doing something, processing the information and doing it in quite a logical, rational way. What was really interesting was that we found that both bits of our thinking seemed to click in. So there are parts of the brain that are more primitive, if you like, that are associated with quick, impulsive decision-making, and there are more highly developed areas of the brain that are associated with mathematical processing, logical thinking. And what we found that both interacted, and so both were lighting up in mm. these, these brain imaging experiments. Um, 
which is quite interesting because it, and this is a theme I develop in, in Copycats and Contrarians a bit as well, is it links back to an idea from Daniel Kahneman's Thinking Fast mm. and Slow book in which there's this idea that there are two systems of thinking. There's this quick, impulsive system of thinking and then there's a slower, more deliberative system of thinking and that the two interact. And in some contexts, it's a good idea to run and act quickly and impulsively. So if you see a lion coming at you through the jungle or whatever, of course you run, of course you act impulsively. There's an evolutionary value to that. But in other circumstances, the more reflective, deliberative brain takes over when you're wanting to consider something more carefully, for example, student studying or, or something like that. So it's the, this interacting systems idea, which I think is a really interesting way of thinking about things, that it's not one or the other, it's an interaction of both. And historically, I guess, economics got very caught up with this deciding whether people are being rational or irrational. And I've sort of come away from wanting to be so black and white about it. I think people are complex. Sometimes they're rational. Sometimes they're less rational. Sometimes the two things are interacting. It depends on the context and the circumstances. Mm. It's a fascinating look into what understanding neuroscience can tell us mm. about economics and our decision making. As you said, it was very much just a black and white thing mm. um, for the longest time. Do you want to just tell us a bit about what has understanding neuroscience and the neuroscience of decision making? Making, given behavioural economics and, and allowed us to understand about how people make choices or how people herd or follow mm. groups and things like that? One thing that neuroscience has given us is the power to be a bit more predictive, to get richer data sets. So previously with, with economics and or experimental psychology as, as well, we inferred what people were thinking from their choices. So they revealed their preferences in what they bought or what they did. And we had no way of knowing what was what was going on in people's minds. And what neuroscience has done has enabled us to understand a bit better what's going on in that black box of the brain. Not completely. I mean, a lot of these neuroscientific techniques, they have their limitations, they have their critics, but they allow us to see more clearly exactly what's going on. So for example, in that herding experiment I was describing to you, by looking at which areas of the brain are more actively engaged when people are doing something, it helps us to understand to what extent they're thinking slowly and carefully or to what extent they're thinking quickly and impulsively. That's simplifying things, and it's always just inferring from, from the data, but it, it gives us a much, much richer data set. It also potentially has some predictive power because it's a technique called transcranial magnetic stimulation, mm. which some interesting work was being done around that in the context of economics and, and business experiments in terms of if you zap a certain area of the brain with this transcranial magnetic stimulation, you basically... You, you stop that area of the brain functioning briefly and you see how the decisions change. So that enables you to predict more precisely which area of the brain is being engaged with different sorts of tasks. I guess essentially it's about a way to collect richer data about exactly what's going on in people's minds when they're making the choices in a way that 
traditional economics could not do. Mm, absolutely. It's definitely a, a, a new frontier and mm. it, it must be an exciting thing to be a part of. Yes, for sure. it is. It is very exciting. If you've just tuned in, you're listening to Think Business Futures here on 2SER 107.3. My name is Stefan Postuma. I'm your host. And I'm joined in the studio by Michelle Baddeley from the UTS Business School. And we're talking about the idea of herding. Um, let's talk about that opposite side of the coin that we mentioned earlier, the mavericks and the contrarians. How do we identify who a true maverick is? What characteristics do these people possess? I think there are two types of mavericks, if you like. There are mavericks who, ironically, if you like, uh, want to impress the crowd. They want to impress the crowd by being different. And perhaps they have a new idea or a new approach to politics or whatever, and they distinguish themselves by coming up with some radical or very different idea about how to do things or how to run a country or whatever. And the fact that they're different appeals to people. That would happen with entrepreneurship as well, is that an entrepreneur thinks up a new product because they want people to buy it. Mm. So these types of mavericks aren't completely unconcerned by what the rest of the world thinks. They just want to make a name for themselves. They want to impress other people by being distinctive. So they're still acting in a social way, if you like. Mm, absolutely. So, But a true maverick would really have to be a bit of a sociopath, so I imagine mm. <laughs> would be extremely rare. So what distinguishes the more usual mavericks that are being different in order to impress people or sell a product or get votes is that they're prepared to take risks. So when you follow along or do what everyone else is doing, that is not risky at all. You're not risking anything in terms of your reputation or going back to this learning idea, learning from others. You know, if you're doing what other people are doing, maybe the chances are that on average they might be more likely to be right than wrong. So you're not risking anything. Whereas the maverick is taking risks to do something different to impress people in, in different ways. And so I think that probably distinguishes a maverick and perhaps their perception of potential benefits that they might get from doing something different. But also, I guess, a power for innovative thinking. That mm. They might be the ones who see the, the new idea or the new way of doing things and decide to take a risk in really pursuing that. So there's a risk in being unconventional, which goes back to... Uh, to paraphrase John Maynard Keynes, uh, an economist from the mid-20th century, very influential, of course, who said it's better to be conventionally wrong than unconventionally right. Mm. If you're, And this is true in the financial sector as well. You know, if, say, you're a trader and you lose a million dollars for your company and all the other traders are doing the same, you're not going to lose your job. Mm. You will lose a million dollars and you're betting on something no one else is betting on, well, the chances are you're not going to be very popular with your boss. So that idea that it's better to be conventionally wrong than unconventionally right really feeds into reputation. Mm. So it's about taking risks, having new ideas that are different and seeing the benefits of, of what those new different ideas might be. Now, that's not to say that the new ideas or the innovation, in inverted commas, are necessarily good things. So we see people like Trump and, and Boris Johnson, they're sort of really very interested in what other people think. That's what drives them. 
but they can see an opportunity to get a lot of support from coming up with something that is a bit different, that stands out. Not that that's right at all, mm. what they're coming up with, in, in my view, but it, it's what makes them distinctive. Another sort of maverick that I talk about a little bit in my book, which I would have liked to get into a bit more but just didn't have time, are the whistleblowers. And they illustrate the fact that sometimes the mavericks are just brave. Mm, you know, okay. they take the risk to be a whistleblower, to risk their career, their life, you know, they all sorts of ways in which whistleblowers have really had a very, very hard time mm. after blowing the whistle. But they are also mavericks. They're also ones that aren't prepared to go along with allowing whatever to yeah. continue. It's an interesting contrast, isn't it? Because, you know, at the top there, you talked about the mavericks who do things just as much for the, the social credence mm. as, as mm. many other things, mm. whereas you've got whistleblowers on the other side of the mm. coin, and we've been talking about risk, who basically are at the mercy of institutions, governments, mm. whoever mm. it might be, to face the consequences of their actions. And I think it's interesting also to reflect a little bit on the role of social media in terms of how these public mavericks, in inverted mm. commas, uh, are now operating. If you talk about traders, if you talk about the crypto world, we've got these these people who are hugely influential on social media mm. and are perhaps considered mavericks in their spheres, but are putting out all their information to a huge crowd mm. to gain the respect and support of all these people, but mm. are also, in a way, influencing the herd mm. and mm. and creating creating a lot of people following along with what they do. So. So, I mean, when it comes to these, when it comes to sort of social media, if one engages in social media in this way and is a sort of a public maverick and influences crowds, does that sort of negate the fact that they are a maverick in a way? Yeah, I, I would say so. I've become quite sceptical about social media, and it, there's a bit of a theme in my book on that as well. Mm. But I'm probably even more sceptical about social media than I was when I wrote the book a couple of years ago. It gets back to this idea of the systems in in the brain. You've got the system one impulsive decision making. You know, decision making might have its role in certain contexts, but for example, Twitter, social media is completely driven by system one. I I find it really worrying that it is so impulsive and that often people are tweeting not because they sincerely believe something, which is sounding a bit earnest, but because they want other people to like it. So they're not even necessarily thinking what they think. They're thinking what other people think might like it. That you know, So it becomes what's called a beauty contest. People are always worrying about what other people are worrying about, what other people are worrying about. And so where's the truth in all of that? So, so I feel very uneasy about social media. I think more broadly, which is not my area of expertise at all, but I think the young people living online via social media where everything is so distorted and who knows what the truth really is, is is really quite problematic mm. on so many levels. Absolutely. But what are we going to do about it? Social media is here to stay. Yeah, who knows? I, I think that it's 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 so in its infancy still now mm. and it's being mm. developed. And I think the other thing to, to bear in mind is not only are you, you know, not only are people putting out content and reacting in ways that they believe will, you know, benefit that system one like we're talking mm. about but it's also at the mercy of the tech companies who mm. design these things yes. and feed us the information in the ways that they do and we can relate this back to herding and 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 mavericks how do you think social media has affected 
financial markets and the way and 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 trading and things like that has it had a big impact and especially when you look at the crypto world for example mm. the the whole discourse pretty much occurs on twitter and mm. and mm. the people that have the most influence on the crypto market people do have the ability to shift the market on social media when it mm. comes to this yes. yeah the idea that there are people on twitter and social media who are affecting financial markets absolutely is is problematic in terms of creating speculative bubbles um and in financial markets not something we've talked about much so so far but there's a big literature on financial herding that in mm. financial markets that move very quickly they're highly liquid fast moving markets and so it's very easy for the market to to move in one direction or another uh, particularly with certain types of assets and absolutely on social media the market the herd can be moved very quickly and so I think that social media has has quite a big impact on on that uh, and I guess that's something where financial regulation might have more to do mm. more capacity to to shift that mm. some way or another. Absolutely. I I think it's interesting, you know, as we were talking about earlier you know, getting on a train and 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 facing the wrong way mm. and and travelling to Bondi Junction from here at Central mm. isn't isn't a big deal. You know, we can mm. we can yeah. put up with yeah. it, and yeah. and and that's and that's and that's an example of the way that we follow follow the crowd and how herding occurs. But when you look at things like financial markets, or you look at things like, you know, the purchase of cryptocurrency, being guided by the herd on social media, mm. there's a significant lack of information for most mm. people. And we've mm. seen with the crash in crypto and also the crash in the financial market, mm. there's people who have, you know, through the period of COVID, they might have accumulated some savings and things mm. like that and have decided, all right, I'm going to speculate. I'm a, I'm on Twitter and I, I follow all these different people and I think I have a bit of an understanding, mm. but there's a massive informational deficit that mm. has really cost a lot of people over the yeah. last few years. That And that's a really important point that connects with, social media more generally you only hear the good stories mm. and so the information is is distorted and skewed towards you buy bitcoin or whatever and you're going to make millions out of it and so the bad luck stories of people who've lost millions from it you, you know you don't you don't get to hear that or ordinary people have lost all their savings because the the problem with these cryptocurrencies is they're not real physical things. They're not real physical assets. They're not tied mm. to anything. Bitcoin could disappear overnight. It's done. It's done quite well. You know, I wish I'd bought Bitcoin. You know, fifteen years ago. <laughs> of course, <laughs> but I didn't. And the stories you hear about Bitcoin and, and other cryptocurrencies, people buying into that because they on social media, people don't put their bad luck stories on social media mm. unless they think they're going to make some money out of it. So, so that information is not properly curated to be balanced and and fair. And it's true in some opinions expressed about other things as well, that what you see on social media can really heavily weight one side of the story versus another in a way that's not really good in guiding people's decision-making. Michelle, um, it's time to wrap up, but I'm interested to know, uh, is there another book coming soon about about this idea of herding and about how we make these types of decisions? In particular, um, something you mentioned you'd like to study more is is the maverick side of the coin. Yeah, that that would be my next plan for a book, would be to, to write something about the mavericks. There needs to be a book about mavericks mm. because it's something that 
is a bit neglected. Mm. And, and, and even in the economics literature, there's, there's little bits and pieces there. But it's something that really could be explored in much more depth and I think would be very topical and fit with the zeitgeist at the moment as well. Mm, absolutely. Well, that is all we have time for. It's been fascinating. Michelle, thank you so much for joining me here on Think Business Futures. Thank you, Stefan. It's been good fun. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Think Business Futures. Thank you to my guest, Michelle Baddeley. You can listen and share this chat wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to subscribe to get Think Business Futures in your feed each week. And please support the show by leaving a review. I'm your host, Stefan Postuma, and I'll see you again somewhere in the world of business next week.